Welcome to another episode of Ew, That's Creepy. This week, we are talking about unsolved murders. Jackie is going to start by telling Melissa about the tragic unsolved murder of Leah Ulrich. Please be aware that this episode will discuss a brutal murder in a graphic crime scene. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. We are here for another episode of Ooh, That's Creepy. And this week, we're going to be talking about some unsolved murders. Ooh, a category you either love or you hate. (laughs) True. I'm a sucker for unsolved stuff, but some of it does, like, keep me up at night type stories. Like, mom, our mom hates unsolved murders. We'll always be like, let's watch Disappeared or Cold Cases or something. And she's like, no, I need closure. Mm -hmm. So I get it. I get why you would hate it. But I personally love them because I love the mystery. Same. And this one, I'm just going to say off the bat, this one's pretty sad and pretty heinous. But I just feel like it's one that, like, can be solved. Like, it's not one that I feel like, you know. So. I mean, and because it's like you can't just because the ones are sad, you can't just not tell them because I feel like then those stories get forgotten. And it's like for those people, it shouldn't be forgotten. We have the most DNA evidence we've ever had. Everyone's on Ancestry.com. God I think damn this it. is honestly one of those stories that has gotten forgotten because like I don't think this was an Unsolved Mysteries, the show, but it seems just like a story that would be on that show. So, hmm. well... Even though it's sad, tell it. And hopefully, like I said, someone will be on Ancestry or whatever.com and someone will have some DNA and someone could solve this bitch. Exactly. So let's get into it. Tell it, Jackie, tell it, Jackie, tell it, Jackie, tell it, Jackie. (laughs) (laughs) This is the story of Leah Olbrich. Her maiden name was Leah Baskin. So this, the crime, obviously we know that's what happens because, um, that's the theme. And so, it's this podcast. <laughs> yeah, seriously. So the crime happens in 1995 in Hartford, Connecticut. At this time, Leah was 24 years old. She was known to be a sweet and friendly person who cared deeply for others. And she had often talked about going to nursing school to become a nurse so she could help others one day. She was a creative person and enjoyed writing poetry, and she was a really good artist. And I thought this was cool, just a little fun fact. In fifth grade, she made origami that was displayed in the Connecticut State Museum of Natural History. What? Why? What was unique about it? I honestly don't know exactly. It just says, like, she made some really unique origami pieces. Maybe they were just really good because she was in fifth grade. Stop. I have the strangest connection to the story because remember in fifth grade, I loved origami. I had like that weird love for origami all of a sudden. And I, I honestly thought I was pretty good at doing it for just being in fifth grade. Like I was making more than just a crane in this. (laughs) (laughs) Well, apparently Leah was too. So yeah, she was really good. What year is this taking place again? Well, the crime part's in 1995, but she would have been a kid in like the 1980s, 80s or late 70s. Okay. I don't know why I said 80s, assuming she's, like, a teenager. Sorry. Well, she's 24 in 1995, so... Oh. 
Would have been like 70s. It's sad that I assumed it was a young woman, and unfortunately it is. But it is a young woman, woman. yeah. Uh, Sadly, this was not a good point in Leah's life in October of 1995. She had recently walked out of the halfway house that she was staying in, and she hadn't talked to her family uh, since leaving. Oh, no. Leah had always had uh, some struggles with drug addiction on and off since she was a teenager, and she had stopped using for a while before she had met what would become her husband named Bobby Ulbrich. She... But the problems must have been, like, pretty serious because she had gone through drug counseling program and was, like, quote-unquote clean when she met her husband, Bobby. So it wasn't just, like, how teens kind of dabble in drugs. Like, I think it was some serious stuff. Oh, that's sad. Yeah, but she had two children with Bobby, and Joanne Ulbrich, who was Bobby's mother, remembered that Leah had been a great daughter-in-law And was a really great mother at the beginning of their marriage. But she also said that Leah got married really young. But it was clear, like, she really was in love with Bobby. What age did they get married? Uh, Okay, I'm not exactly sure what age they got married. But the marriage only lasted two years before falling apart. And they separated, I believe, in 1991. So So they got married in 1989. So she would have been, like, 18. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, not to judge anybody. If you love each other, you love each other. Exactly. But But 18, damn. (laughs) Well, yeah, and apparently, um, I don't know specifically what were the problems that made it fall apart, but the marriage did not last, and yeah, they were together for two years, and before they split up, sadly, after they split up in 1991, Leah got involved with the wrong crowd again and began using cocaine. Her children actually were taken from her custody when police found drugs in her home and that the kids were living in really poor conditions. Oh no, Leah. Yeah, Bobby and Leah's mother were granted partial custody of the children, and this caused Leah to become kind of even more depressed and use drugs even more heavily. Mm. She spent the next two years after her separ- or after her children were taken away. Uh, kind of just bouncing in and out of trouble with the law, and she did do a nine-month time in jail in 1994. I'm not exactly what for. Possession? Might have been drugs. I do know that um, Leah had also done sex work before, so I'm not sure if it was for prostitution or drug use, something along those lines, but... She did do nine months in jail in 1994, but her family was a little surprised in October of 1995 to hear that Leah had walked out of the halfway house because that summer she had been determined to break free from her addiction and move on from drugs, and she had voluntarily checked herself into a drug rehab program in Connecticut, and she had graduated from that. So, she was doing pretty good. She was attending um, Narcotics Anonymous meetings, so NA meetings, and she, yeah, had moved into the halfway house, and she was planning on working to earn her GED. 
Okay. So, yeah, the summer of 1995, it kind of seemed like things, Leah was, like, wanting to turn around her life and get things together. Does leaving the halfway house necessarily mean that she fell off the wagon, or...? Well, her family really doesn't know, because I'm not sure if it was Leah specifically who told her family that she left the halfway house, or, like, somebody there, but they kind of just assume that she relapsed. They didn't assume, I won't say that. They didn't assume. They feared that she probably had relapsed and left. Okay. But she didn't specifically say, you know, what was going on. Yeah. But sadly, around 4.45 a.m. on October 29th, 1994, a couple people saw Leah in the passenger seat of a car driven by an unidentified male. The two were parked near the intersection of Locust and East Elliott Streets, which is uh, a section of Hartford, Connecticut. When people say that the two started arguing over something, which I'm also surprised. There were, like, a good amount of witnesses in this case, and it was 4.45 a.m. Damn. Yeah, like... What was everyone doing? <laughs> I don't know. Going to work? Well, yeah, we'll talk about one guy who was actually, like, going to work. But somehow... There were witnesses around who heard the t- two, Leah and this unidentified male, arguing over something, and eventually the fight turned physical. Oh. Bill Fleming, he was a delivery driver for the Hartford Courant, which is, like, newspaper. He noticed that the car, um, he noticed the car, sorry, he noticed the car was parked on Locust Street, and he was driving by it when he saw the driver actually strike a woman, who was Leah, oh. and he heard the woman starting to scream for help, so Bill, being the nice guy that he is, made a U-turn and went back to see if he could help the woman. As soon as he turned around, the driver must have noticed, because the driver of the car rubbed their engine and sped off, but sadly, Leah was hanging from the passenger side of the car. Oh my god. That son of a bitch. Yeah, and trigger warning, this story is really brutal, so... Oh my god. There's a lot of gore and violence. If you want to keep listening, listener discretion is advised. Oh god. So Bill attempted to follow the car, but... He's like when the speed reached to 60 miles per hour, he decided that it was just too dangerous and he couldn't do it. So he radioed where he worked. I don't know how, but that's pretty cool. He radioed someone he worked with and asked them to call the police. And the person did at around 4.50 and explained what Bill had saw. When Bill lost sight of the car, he last saw it headed down East Elliott Street in the direction of Weathersfield Avenue, and an officer was immediately dispatched to the area. So several people, once again, don't know how they're around this early, watched as the car turned onto Weathersfield Avenue and continued toward Jordan Lane, sadly dragging Leah along with it. Oh my god. But good for these people for calling the police, seriously. Even though it's 4.45 in the morning, good for them. Yeah, it is, like, people were very diligent and very much, like, doing their duty as a good citizen. And good for for police for dispatching someone, like, right away. Oh, yeah, they were they're, like, on it. So good for them for everyone being on their shit. Yeah, so police were on it so fast that somehow they got to the scene before the car, like... 
had completely driven away. So Hartford police officer Martin Burke saw the car's headlights speeding towards him when he turned onto Weathersfield Avenue. And he he did a U.E. and tried to pull the car over, but it had already sped out of the view. But he did see, sadly, a trail of blood on the road. And he followed the blood trail onto Jordan Lane and discovered what was left of Leah's body. Oh, my God. Her body was against a curb in a storm drain. Leah had been dragged for more than four miles and had literally been torn to pieces. Police had to block off multiple crime scenes and, like, just basically section off almost the whole four miles. And several residents who lived on Jordan Lane reported that they heard screaming which police assume, sadly, that Leah had been alive for most of this drive. Oh, my God. The story is so fucked up. Yeah, it is. The medical examiner later determined that the cause of death had been blunt force trauma to Leah's whole entire body. Oh, my God. She was so torn apart that police could only identify her at first by tattoos, which included the name Ozzy and... That was on her leg, I believe, and then a pair of theater mask tattoos on her shoulder. So, Leah's family was actually not notified of Leah's death until two weeks later. It took them that long to find out who it was? I guess. Oh, my God. Yeah, like, at first they really had no way of knowing who it was, because, like, as sad and truly disgusting as it is, it was just, like, her body was completely mangled. I, like, seriously feel sick. Yeah, I'm really sorry. But then, but it needs to be told because who would do something like that? Yeah, and I'll just continue because, yeah, it's like, you guys will know at the end, I really do think this is something that can be solved. That's why I'm telling it. I'm not just telling it for the wow and the shock factor of like, oh my god, that's crazy and gross. Like, I really think that this, in this day and age, could be solved. I agree. We don't do anything for just the shock factor mm-hmm. on here. We're doing it for the victims. No, no. Do you think I want to sit here and hear about this either? Like, yeah, seriously. I love crime, but this is horrific. Yeah, this one is messed up. But her story needs to be told, so continue. Yeah, and I'm just going to say it right here, and I'm sure that uh, Leah's family agrees, that this story got pushed to the wayside because Leah was a drug user, as many, 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 many stories do. But... I'll continue and then we'll rant at the end. Yeah, I was just, I could, I was seriously yeah. about to go off on a rant, but I just was like, <sighs> we'll go off, we'll go off at the end. Let me take a deep breath and let it out. Yeah. Okay. So, even though there were several witnesses to Leah's murder, like, people just somehow in the vicinity, the awesome driver who did a U-turn and called the police, none of them were able to describe an actual description of the the guy in the car. It had been dark when it took place because it was so early in the morning. And all that investigators were kind of told was that it appeared to be a white or Hispanic man. It was just a light complexioned person with slender build, dark hair, and he wore it slicked back. He was probably in his late 20s and was clean shaven at the time. But detectives didn't make a lot of progress in identifying who it was. They were unsure if Leah knew the guy or not. Could they at least check off her husband or the ex-husband? Uh, 
Yeah, that's a good idea. I mean, I'm kind of assuming they did because usually they do, but I don't really think they had, like... She was in an area that was known for prostitution. Yeah, I get that, but it's just, like, late 20s, that's the age of her ex-husband, so... Yeah, people just kind of thought that because she had done sex work in the past and she had just recently come out of the halfway house, people... Police just kind of put pieces together that maybe she had been either using drugs or maybe had met somebody sort of thing. Okay. But the man was driving a dark-colored car that they believed to be an early 1990s model Nissan Maxima or an Altima. Probably black, brown, burgundy, or blue. Couldn't be sure. Just dark. Oh, damn. One witness recalled that it looked like it was a temporary license tag in the rear window. Detectives eventually tracked down every Maxima and Altima in the state of Connecticut that had a temporary tag at the time of the murder, but were unable to make any connections with any of those vehicles. Detectives were really working their asses off in this one. Good for them. Because they were shook. Like, all the detectives who went on the scene said that... Yeah, they didn't see that shit. Exactly. They said even though they see a lot of crimes, seeing Leah's body reduced to basically nothing in four miles of road was shocking to them and a lot of people in the area and they like were wanted to catch it and that one poor officer showed up as soon as that happened like the first one to find her like that image is going to be with him forever and i just got the chills just thinking about it so oh my god i hope he's healing i hope they all are right and um sadly leah's shoes were found on the side of locust street as if like they had been pulled right off of her when the car took off. It must have been going so fast. And her jacket was nearby. Oh my god. So, investigators were working around the clock, but they really weren't making that much progress. Like, they were doing a lot, but they just weren't connecting any dots. They were able to track down all but one witness who had called 911 when the murder was in progress, because it was multiple callers. And... But they had been unable to locate a woman who had called from a call box on the corner of Weathersfield Avenue and Elliott Street, which was, like, the road that the majority of the crime took place. Bummer. And the woman who called told police that she had seen a woman being dragged by a car but hung up before giving any other information. And detectives made a public plea for that woman to get in touch with them, but she never did, and she never has to this day. What the hell? Where are you, girl? We need you. Yeah, I don't know. So, they interviewed Leah's ex-husband, her ex-boyfriends, her associates. They interviewed basically all the men in Leah's life, but determined that none of them seemed that they were involved in her death. And they... Just assume that it wasn't somebody who knew Leah, which made it even harder for them to track down somebody. Yeah. But detectives continued to appeal to the public for help and multiple times, like, just went in the public to try to get help because they figured that that was their best way. And they also were pretty smart and made pleas to the public saying to look out for any vehicles that... Uh, had sustained damage to the front passenger side door as well as the right fender because they assumed that the crime would cause that much damage to the car. Yeah, there would at least be hella blood. Yes. 
And investigators believed, after reviewing the crime, that the killer had attempted to push Leah out of his car and her arm had gotten caught or, like, tangled up in the seatbelt or she had been unable to free herself completely from the seatbelt or she had tried to escape but had gotten stuck in the seatbelt. One of those scenarios, but that was how she was stuck. Like, and the car was from the seatbelt still. It's so annoying because it's like, just stop and push her out of the car then, if that was your purpose. Like, yeah, why seriously. do all of that? I don't know. But police also believe that from this information that the front passenger side seatbelt of the killer's car would likely be damaged. So they also asked auto repair shops in the area to keep an eye out for anybody who requested a seatbelt repair. Okay. A few weeks after the murder, the governor of Connecticut authorized a $20,000 reward for information leading to the arrest or conviction of the man who killed Leah. Oh, wow. Okay, good. I thought they were, like... I think it got a little forgotten just in this day and age. Like, this only happened in 1995, and I don't hear anything about it. I've never heard of the story, so I think it's gotten forgotten now. But at the time, they were still... They were really going. Yeah. They, once again, were asking people... Like, neighbors look out for a Nissan, like, keep an eye on everybody, but they still got really nothing. Um, Robert Baskin, Leah's father, appeared to the public multiple times asking people to help find his daughter. But Leah's family did admit that they personally believed that she had been, like, involved with drugs prior to her death, and that is what kind of led to her death. But they also use this to kind of serve as, like, a cautionary tale for other young women who might be wrapped up in drugs. But Robert had actually served as chief of staff for a U.S. representative. So he was, like, he got some credit for being in the public spotlight. And he used it really to paint, like, his daughter in a good light and try to remember her no matter what her past had looked like, and try to just remember the great person that she was. Good, good. Because it didn't, like, your your life had nothing to, like, it might have put you in that situation, but you do not deserve that at all. Yeah, and, no one does. Exactly, and if you were into sex work, it's like maybe someone, another woman at that time who was also into sex work could have had an experience with someone who did something like this. Oh, bitch. We've seen it before with serial killers. It happens all the time. Well, we're going to get to something like that in a second. Oh, I love when I can predict Yeah, you're good at this. (laughs) So in March of 1996, investigators received some forensic results, and they had done some forensic Forensic testing on Leah's clothing. They found metallic blue paint chips on several items of her clothes, so it confirmed that the killer's car had been blue. And a few weeks later, they announced that they had a potential suspect in the murder, but wouldn't say anything about it. What? And they didn't say they were anywhere near making an arrest. So So why tell us you have a suspect? (laughs) Yeah, even though they didn't say the name of it, Eventually, news media, like, just picked up that it was a 24-year-old man who had previously been arrested on multiple counts of kidnapping and attempted sexual assault, which were only a couple months after Leah was killed. Ew. Yeah. And detectives working the case also found several women who claimed that this man in particular had picked them up in the area and driven them to secluded areas of East Hartford where he had assaulted them and then forced them out of his car. 
Electric chair. <laughs> yeah. Death by castration. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. So after learning of all that, um, detectives get a warrant to search this guy's car and submit some of his stuff to forensic lab for a comparison with the evidence at the murder scene. And the man had seemed like a good suspect, but none of the tests, like none of the paint or the fiber samples from his car matched those found on Leah's clothing. Damn. Yeah. They should have asked people, asked witnesses if maybe it looked like him. I don't know. I don't know if that just eliminated him altogether, but the case went cold, sadly, once again. Yes. In 2002, the Hartford Police department announced that they were going to up the reward to $50,000 for any information. Uh, They also set up a tip line for people to call, and investigators still noted that they never found the one woman who called 911 that day from Weathersfield Avenue. Come forward, girl. I know. But at a 2002 press conference, officials did say that they had a cord from an electric device that had been with Leah's remains that they believed that she had somehow ripped out of the car in her struggle. Okay. Give us a cord. They didn't say what type of cord it was or anything like that, but they noted that the killer may have needed to, like, repair some sort of electronic device, and it was possible that a service station could recall making repairs around the time. They don't know. They're really just grasping for straws at this point, but I still commend that they're doing their job. I mean, yeah, what else can they do? At least they're still trying. Like, this is a really hard one. Yeah. And so, sadly, in 2019, the last kind of updates about this case, detectives say that they're still trying to look for justice. They have... They do have items of evidence that they are sending for advanced forensic testing That wasn't available at the time of the murder, but no results have come back yet. I know, I believe they got some DNA from under her fingernails that wasn't testable at the time, so I'm assuming they're testing that again. Okay. They do still have some people of interest in the case, and they're trying to utilize new technology that wasn't available at the time and reanalyze stuff. There are, sadly, Polaroids of the crime scene, but they are just too gory and brutal that police have never, they've chosen not to ever release them. Good. Because, like, no one should be remembered by that. Yeah. Like, Uh uh-huh. You don't even want to put that out into existence because you know that'll just be on Google Images and it will just, like, tarnish the reputation of the person because, like, Uh that is, no one should see that. Yeah, and I just thought that this was interesting. Police say that they believe this is the biggest crime scene in Connecticut history because it spread four miles that they found like pieces in her blood and stuff like that. And that's the craziest part. The largest crime scene in Connecticut history is still an unsolved murder. Yeah, which is why I think like if people just remember like, oh, I know that was a long time ago, but if you remember in 1995, someone having a blue Nissan Altima or... Maxima, whatever the other one was, and they had damage to their venter or their, like, passenger side of the car or the seatbelt. 
And can we test any of the DNA under their fingernails? Like, I will pay the money I think they have. I just don't think they've gotten matches. But still, so like, no if they get Curtis. a suspect, I don't think so, but they could still get a suspect. Yeah, it's like, okay, I know there's no one, maybe if there's not in CODIS, but can we try, like, the websites with ancestry and things like that? Like, yeah. Okay, so a couple more little tidbits. Ryan Ulbrich, who is Leah's son, um, said in a couple conversations with in different articles that I'm obviously going to link, that police told him that they believed it was a partial New York license plate that someone had saw. Okay. Ryan also said that his mother had underwent another severe attack years earlier, in what? which was she was left in a coma and traumatically brain injured, and she oh, received rehabilitation from Gaylord Hospital. Oh my god. Yeah, and so he questions if police ever investigated the initial attack that occurred. If they ever investigated that. Yeah, like, could this be if she was into sex work, could this be a repeated customer? Could this be a secret lover no one knew about? Could this yeah. be just someone who was weirdly obsessed with her? Yeah, and in another article on Medium.com written by Donna R. Gore, she talks about a lot how, like, this prior injury could have caused Leah some brain damage that might have affected her judgment, which could have played a role in just... How she assessed, like, the situation, which I thought was pretty interesting, if you guys wanted to read more about that. Mm -hmm. But, uh, I'll end on a positive note. Leah's children, Ryan and Aubrielle, who were only three and two when they were taken from their mother in 1993, they're both two, um, very impressive people, so we'll give them the spotlight for a second. Yes, please. I needed some positivity at the end of this story. Yeah, so Aubrielle um, is now in her later 20s, early 30s, I believe. In a quote, she said, We've always known what happened to her, and I think that was really important. We always knew the good and the bad, and she always was a lot of the things that have ever been written about her. But there was also this great side of her. She was really creative, and my grandpa always says I'm so much like her in that sense. It's interesting how this person we never really got to know is so much a part of us. Ryan had kind of begun looking into the case in 2012, and he did get a little frustrated that police hadn't found the killer yet, but he... Uh, did an internship to complete his degree at Eastern Connecticut State University at the Survivors of Homicide, which is a nonprofit group dedicated to providing services to families who have lost a member to violence. Aww. So Ryan did that internship, and he actually would was in a unit to help recent homicide victims connect with support services. So that's really great. Good for him. Yeah, and he said that the experience really changed his perspective on things and I think helped him grow and, like, learn a lot. Oh. Yeah. Shout out to these kids for being so positive. Like, they sound so sweet and... I just hope they're healing. I hope the best for them because this is so horrible. I know, They sound like such sweet people. Right? Ryan ended up earning his degree and is a salesman in the Chicago area, and Aubrielle owns a home in Connecticut, I believe, and is preparing to take a real estate exam at whatever time they did one of these interviews, so I'll link it below. Great for them. Yeah, and 
they're both great kids, I think, really making a difference in remembering their mother in a good way. I love that name, Aubrielle. Oh. Yeah, me too. That's so so um, shout out to them for both, both trying to make the best of a really bad situation. Oh. It seems like they're both thriving and doing great. But sadly, the case, that's really where it ends. It's just unsolved. But I think just with so much evidence, like, it just can be solved. I really do. I don't think you should ever lose hope on A hundred and ten percent. Like, it is not over. That is not the end. You could definitely figure out who it was. We could maybe see if there's more DNA. Even small samples now are testable. Exactly. Exactly. Put the DNA back out into CODIS. Put it into Ancestry.com, goddammit. Yeah. And let's see if maybe you could get something this time. Exactly. But, like, if people just keep talking about it or something. Put someone under hypnosis. Right? Or even if people just somehow find that woman who called if she remembered anything. Like, just, I still have hope, which is why I wanted to do this story. (sighs) I always have hope. And even though that one was horrible, like, the reason why it's horrible is because if someone did that, like, you either told someone, you left some evidence, you don't just do that and, like, act like it never happened. Mm -hmm. I feel like someone out there still knows something. I agree. And something so heinous, I just feel like you would be messed up as a person after doing that. Yeah, I agree. You would think. I agree. I think that one can be solved. (sighs) Well... Damn. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, everybody. But I, uh... uh That's hope, all I can say. Yeah. I hope you guys are having a great September. On a good note, it's fall. On another too. note, I went to Spirit. It gave me everything. Yeah. Did I tell you that they, the one girl offered me a part-time job? She was like, you could just work, like, one day a week. I swear to God, I'm considering oh it, like, God. on a Sunday. You should. That would be amazing. I had so... Literally. I had so much fun when I was there. They had, like, all the spooky music playing. <gasps> I love that. Yeah. Well, I hope you guys go to Spirit if you need a pleasant pick-me-up. Yeah. After this episode, people are going to need to go to damn Spirit to yeah. feel something. Sorry. But let us know if you guys have heard of this case or, you know, if you heard anything different. Yeah. Any info that anyone might have, let us know. And let us know if you guys love unsolved murders or if you're like, no, I can't. I need the closure. (laughs) Let us know. Thank you guys for listening. We love you and we appreciate you as always. And we will see you guys next time on another episode of Ew. That's creepy. Ew. Bye. Bye. Want to creep on us? Follow us on social media at ew, that's creepy podcast, or send us an email at ew, that's creepy podcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Thanks, creepy cats.